Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, uh, March the 21st, 2023. Over the years, we've done a number of rather depressing shows on the European refugee crisis or the broader crisis of refugees in the world, one with the Irish journalist Sally Hayden. Uh, she has an award-winning book, uh, My Fourth Time We Drown, Seeking Refuge on the World's Deadliest Migration Route. Remarkable book and conversation, but depressing, as I said. Another with an American journalist, Tyma Cormack, on the story of another refugees resettlement in America, slightly more cheerful, but nonetheless also in its own way depressing. Andrew Leon Hanna, we had a conversation with about why and how the world's refugees are 25 million sparks of innovation of humanity. The word humanity seems to be very much associated with the refugee crisis. And then in a broad sense, we also uh, had... Uh, the very distinguished humanitarian Jane Olson on the show uh, on her memoir, World Citizen, Journeys of a Humanitarian, focusing on her career, if that's the right word, particularly in terms of uh, struggling for the rights of refugees. Uh, we have another world citizen on the show today. Uh, Dana Sachs is a Successful author of many different kinds of books, also the co-founder of Humanity Now, a group very much focused on helping refugees in the European crisis. And uh, she has a new book out today, All Else Failed, The Unlikely Volunteers at the Heart of the Migration Aid Crisis, uh, which is a book about the volunteers who fought for the rights of refugees during this crisis. She's joining us from Wilmington, North Carolina, where she lives. Um, Dana, congratulations on the book. I'm not sure if, if, if perhaps that's the right word. Tell me a little bit about why you wrote this book. Um, well, I guess I need to go back to um, when I became a volunteer myself, which was in uh, 2016. And that was during a time which a lot of people here might remember. Um, we were seeing in the newspapers and on um, television all the time, this imagery of people coming from um, coming into Europe, mostly from Turkey, mostly on boats. And um, it was a humanitarian crisis like in Europe that we hadn't seen since um, basically since the end of World War II. And um, hundreds of thousands of people were coming through. And in Greece, um, it sort of ended up being an epicenter of that. And I was watching from a distance. I had lived in Europe and and ha at certain times and had um, saw people walking through places that I knew and was horrified by it. And I also have written about refugees uh, quite a bit in my um time as a journalist. Um, but I wasn't really thinking about going there. And then a friend of mine who works with refugee with refugee resettlement in California said, I'm going over there um, to volunteer with the grassroots aid movement. And I said, you can do that. You can just go volunteer. And she said, yes, you can. And in fact, they need people because the 
the large scale humanitarian organizations that we have come to expect are going to be there in times of crisis really weren't there in Greece when these hundreds of thousands of people were arriving and they needed help. They needed food. They needed blankets. They needed um, water and um, support of all kinds. And so um, a, a very organic grassroots aid movement um, developed to help them, starting out just with individual Greek villagers who would go and serve sandwiches to um, these like small um, coalitions of people who started to work together. And so we went over there and spent 10 days um, handing out uh, food and distributing clothing. And I realized that this was something that if it had shocked me, it probably would have shocked a lot of people. And people needed to know that this was happening and that so many individuals were getting involved in this movement to help other people who were in need. Dana, is the book on these volunteers, what you call these unlikely volunteers, is it a celebration of their humanity, their dedication, their selflessness, heroism? Or is it a warning about the failure of larger organizations, international organizations, to address this terrible humanitarian crisis? Um, I would say it's a little bit of both. Uh, I... um, I am so impressed by and inspired by the grassroots aid movement. And I felt like I needed to do what I could to get the word out and to explain what was happening and also to not show it as this sort of perfect situation. People who are not professionals don't necessarily know what to do. And a a lot went right and a lot went wrong. And I wanted to document that. And these are real human stories of people who thought there's a mess going on over there and I'm gonna go over there and, and help. As far as the um, the mainstream humanitarian organizations, I mean, I definitely have some criticism of the Red Cross and the International Rescue Committee and the United Nations. But I would say I, I kind of characterize myself as um, somebody who is writing about a house that's burning down. And I see the house burning down and the fire trucks aren't there. And the neighbors are putting out the fire or doing their best to put out the fire. Um, I can't tell you why the house is burning down. I can't tell you why the fire trucks aren't there. Aren't there? Those are not my areas of expertise. But I can. I have really tried to chronicle what happened when the neighbors said, "Oh my God, that house is burning down. Let's see what we can do to help." The volunteers you write about in the book are quite diverse. Some are perhaps more heroic, selfless than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, they show up for all sorts of different reasons. My nephew went to Greece to help the refugees. Tell me about the types of people who were um, attracted in particular to Greece where you begin your story uh, to help with this crisis. Well, the most significant point I want to make about who these people were is that a lot of them, and in these days, um, maybe a significant majority of them are actually displaced people themselves who get involved in this effort to support themselves in their communities, to bring dig- dignity back to their own lives, to find something to do if they're bored because they're just sitting around and they can't work. So there's there's 
a lot of refugees in my book who became volunteers. And then there's a number of people also who saw this problem from afar. And um, I really focus on uh, a woman from New Zealand uh, and two women from the UK who both saw, you know, read about the crisis in the media and decided they were going to go over there to help. And, and the book follows the stories of all these people and really, um, sort of shows both the incredible successes of what they were able to do. Like I write about uh, Jenny James from New Zealand who, who started her own tiny aid team. It's called, it was called the get shit done team and went into refugee camps and tried to rebuild the infrastructure and make it better because the people were living in squalor. They didn't even have things like electricity and she was improving the electricity with just a few volunteers. So I, I tried to write about that and tried to try to describe, what it was like for these people who were working on with almost no money, but still managing to do extraordinary things. And then I also write about when things went wrong, because as I said, um, it was a really complicated thing to try to do to go in and, and, and provide humanitarian relief often when you had no experience doing that yourself. Dan, a lot of books on the refugee crisis, particularly written by people like yourself on the front line, are written by people without a lot of experience in writing. You, on the other hand, are a well-published novelist and a couple of very successful novels, The Secret of the Nightingale Palace, If You Lived Here, um, and uh, some other nonfiction books, The Life We Were Given, a book about um, Vietnam and another, The House on Dream Street. Mm -hmm. How did you approach All Else Failed in the context of being a professional writer and at the same time talking about something so horrifying, so depressing uh, and so important? Um, I think I came at it really in in a lot of ways the same in the same way that I come at my other books which is I want to tell a story and I think that this is a story that's worth my time to research and my time to write and the audience's time to read because it's really important to me um when I read I love to read a story I love to read novels um, and I, I am not necessarily as compelled by books that are just a lot of information that's just kind of thrown at you. So um, I, I felt like it was such an incredible human story. And it was so important in the time we live in now um, of, of mass migrations and incredible challenges for so many people who live in so many parts of the world, that this was a way to kind of get at that. And then also just, I mean, I was inspired by the fact that people would get involved and would try to help each other. I don't think we hear that story enough. And I think, I'm not saying that I think human nature is only good. I think there's, there's a lot of, uh, people do a lot of bad things, but I don't think we should just focus on the, the negative. I think, I think people get worn down and depressed by that and it makes it hard to move forward and we have to move forward. We don't have a choice. I think a lot of people would be surprised, Dana, with the fact that, as you say, many of the volunteers you, um, you, you write about in the book mm -hmm. were themselves at one point refugees. Tell me a little bit more about some of those characters, people who had been refugees who now volunteered. 
Okay, I'll tell you about um, a woman I call Rima. She's um, a Syrian. She was a housewife in a, in a small town near Aleppo. And um, she and her husband had five kids and one more on the way when um, the Nusra front, front uh, took over their village and they realized that they really had to get out of there. But she was like eight months pregnant at the time and, and she couldn't leave. So her husband and one child um, fled the country in advance and made it to Germany. And they, the idea was that she and the other children would come later. And so about a month after she gave birth to her her sixth child, she she took the baby, the toddler, two little boys and a, a young adolescent girl and um, walked from Syria across the border into Turkey and somehow got her children by herself when she's just finished having a baby herself um, over the border. And this is a really harrowing story, but her determination was incredible. Um, and she ended up in Greece. And for a while, they lived in a in a, a refugee camp because they couldn't get through the border. The border had closed. And she's alone in this refugee camp with uh, five children, as I said, and desperate to get out of there. And she finally decides, this is not normal. People shouldn't have to live this way. So she has her, her husband send her a little bit of money, and she takes the children down to Athens. And in Athens, they found, they found a um, an illegal housing accommodation that had been it was basically an old school that had been broken into by Greek activists and opened up and, and made available to refugees. And when she got there, people were setting up their tents inside the classrooms in the, in this old school. And um, so she did it too. And she set it up as she set up a tent for herself and her children. And then she got everything organized. And one day she went downstairs just like she'd only been there a few days and she went downstairs and there was there was a meal provided by the um, the people who were living there and the and the local activists. And she said to them, this food is really bad. And she had been like a socialite back in Syria and she cooked for large numbers of people, not this many, but large numbers of people. And she said, I'm going to be the cook. And so she started cooking and she cooked for 400 people every night. And she just did it because she wanted to feed people. And she was a refugee with five children but she was also a volunteer. You came from Wilmington, North Carolina um, to volunteer. That's where you're talking to me from today. You have a family there. Mm -hmm. Were you unusual as an American? Were there a lot of Americans there or did they tend to be more people from Europe and from the Middle East, the they volunteers? Tended to be more people from Europe and um, because it was just so much easier to get to, you know, it takes, it takes a lot more effort and it's more expensive to go from the United States, but there were plenty of people from the United States as well. And um, the people who go volunteer, it's almost like they, they enter this community and they become part of it and they continue to raise money when they go home, which is something I've done by, by co-founding this um, nonprofit. And they, they, once that's you humanity now, the non Yeah. Yeah. And once you volunteer, you feel, you feel, um, a connection to the crisis and you can start to see the ways that you can, that you can help. And I would say for me personally, I think this is true of a lot of the people that I've worked with. Once you get involved, your level of hopelessness goes down in some ways because you can see, how people are helping each other. You can see the endurance and the resilience of, of individuals. And I think that's part of the reason why people be become very committed to being involved in this. Uh, you begin the book in, in 
in the mid uh, 20 teens. How has everything changed between then and today in 2023? Um, I would say it's gone from being a um, humanitarian emergency um, to being a kind of chronic humanitarian uh, problem. People, people, there's not as many people coming over on boats now for mostly for political reasons. They get pushed back by the Greek um, authorities, but the, um, there's there. I would say that there is a lot of um, people end up staying for a longer time. There's less hope about how they can move on or even being able to do something like get a job. So um, it's just there. Um, it's lasting longer and people are are have fewer options now than they had before. How is the Turkish imp uh, the, the the Turkish and Syrian earthquake uh, earlier this year? How has that impacted the crisis? Well, I was actually there just about two weeks after um, the earthquake, and I would say at that point, because it was still quite early, um, most of the kind of um, reaction or most of the the connection that I had to it was not people fleeing into Greece by that point, but more hearing from people who had relatives who had lost family members who died and um, they were worried about their relatives or they didn't have a way to get aid to their relatives. And so it was still in that um, those early days when you just, you know, you feel um, shock and, and panic and like you don't know how to help. There is, of course, an ongoing debate in Europe about these refugees. One in, in the United Kingdom just blew up over the treatment of uh, particularly Albanian refugees trying to get to the UK. What would you say, Dana, as someone who's experienced on the front lines and um, about the controversy? physically spent time with these refugees about people who will say, well, these people should just stay in their own country. Uh, our country is overcrowded. We don't want them here. Yeah, well, I mean, for one thing, I would question this this statement that that our countries are overcrowded because um, we need workers. We need workers in the United States, and we need. Um, I think you need workers in the in the UK and in other parts of Europe. The you know um, the birth rates are going down, and the age of the average people are going up, and these are aging societies, and um, they need workers. And the thing about refugees is these are people who have gotten themselves out of a really disastrous situation. These are these are the the people who make it, you know, the people who find a way through and and the survivors and they're hard workers. And I mean, I think I think they've already proven to us their capacity to be productive members of our society. I mean, of course, I'm coming from that point of view, because I mean, that's that's sort of um, I'm writing about them. I'm, 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 I'm saying that I think these are valuable individuals through the work I see them doing on the grassroots level, but I am convinced by what I see. And I think I'm right that they have a huge amount to offer and that then, and that wealthy countries need them. And it's just, it's really the problem is a political problem and a, and a problem of maybe fear of the unknown. These are people from cultures that, that, the people in these countries might not know as much about. But once you get to know them, they're just human beings like all the rest of us. Yeah, we've done a number of shows on the war in Ukraine as well, particularly with guests from Poland and Germany. And one or two of them have noted that 
the Poles and the Hungarians are much more uh, much more welcoming of Ukrainian refugees, these white Christians, than of mm -hmm. the refugees from the, the civil war in Syria or these catastrophes in Afghanistan or in Turkey or in North Africa, let alone sub-Saharan Africans. Is this something that you noticed in your experience? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, um, I would say because the Ukraine war is more recent and um, my I, I had finished writing my book by the time that happened. But as as part of the aid group humanity now, we absolutely see it. I mean, because now these days we are helping um grassroots aid teams in Poland as well. So I'm, I just came back from Greece and Poland and, and what you're, it's almost like you're seeing in Greece, um, maybe Greece is five years ahead of Poland, like the, the small teams that were doing fine and able to do a huge amount of work in Greece five years ago, they're seeing their funding dry up. And a lot of the reason the funding is drying up is because a lot of the, the world's attention seems to go towards whatever the current crisis is. Not to say that the people from Ukraine don't need help because they do. I mean, we're helping them as well. But there's a kind of um, a, a very short attention span. I would like to see people um, make a decision to help in a particular situation and continue with that situation rather than jumping from whatever the crisis of the day is because we can't rebuild we can't uh, you know we can't help children to grow up if we don't continue to give the aid that they need so yeah it's i mean it's a huge problem and and i think um i think there's i i didn't hear a lot of resentment from people from cultures that aren't ukrainian um but but i did see i mean i heard things for example in poland that that um a lot of like Ukrainian people might be able to live with families in, in Poland or in other parts of Europe, whereas other people who have fled Ukraine but aren't, aren't, Ukrainian, aren't, aren't white Ukrainian citizens like um, people from the Roma community or um, African students who were studying in Ukraine or, you know, marginalized populations, they more often will end up in like these uh, reception centers, which is basically like a camp because they're not as it's not as easy for them to find accommodation with families. I don't want to say individuals are, are, are racist. I want to say that it's more difficult for those people to find a, a find what they need. Dana, is there something surreal about the situation, particularly in Greece, this these parallel worlds of Greek society, expensive hotels for wealthy Western tourists, and then these refugee camps. Are, are they existing in parallel? Do they ever interact? Well, in my book, I write about how, um, you know, there there were in, in 2015 and 2016, the, the boats were arriving on islands that are tourist islands. I mean, that's the main industry in those places. So there'd be a boat arriving and there, there are people like lying on the beaches, you know, I mean, so yeah. And, but, but I also heard stories of tourists who were there to be tourists and they ended up spending their, their vacations um, feeding hungry people. So um, there's definitely intersections and um, you can look at it as, as a positive or a negative. It's, I think personally that it's better for these, these different communities to come in contact with each other because the more intersections we have, the better chance we have of people learning from each other, you know, starting to understand each other a little better, even something like a smile or, you know, 
an adult playing with a refugee child for a few minutes, all of that has an impact. So it, I think you, you could call it surreal, but I mean, I think that's good. Yeah, maybe that's it's surreal, but also true. Let's end, um, Dana, with some policy suggestions. There are going to be people listening to this and watching and think, I, I want to help here. Um, for, for people who, who, who are concerned, and everyone, if you're not concerned with this, then I think you have a problem. Um, what advice would you give? Should they donate to groups like Humanity Now? Would you recommend that people volunteer themselves, particularly if they don't have families or work here? They just go over and help as you did? Um, yeah, I mean, especially if people have have particular skills, if you're a teacher, if you're a dentist, if you're a, um, you know, a, if you can teach yoga, you know, or a therapist or a lawyer. Um, yeah, there's an organization called Indigo Volunteers, which um, which will place uh, volunteers for free in in humanitarian situations. Um, and they'll help you find a place that you that that works for you and your amount of time, the amount of time that you have. So, yeah, I mean, I think volunteering is a fantastic thing to do. I think donating is a fantastic thing to do. And uh, Humanity Now is a very small organization. But we what we do is we're all volunteer and 100 percent of the money that comes um comes into our um, fund, gets spent on um, grassroots aid projects. We don't take any money out. Yeah. And let's just industry. remind people, if you want to look it up, it's humanity So you can find it online. Yeah. And then finally, um, Dana, what about the policy conclusions? I mean, it's an important book and a very, imp yeah. and a very impressive book. It comes with all sorts of amazing blurbs from Adam... Hochschild, who's been on the show before, the author of King Leopold's Ghost and To End All Wars, a magnificent writer, and then Rebecca Solnit, one of the, the great American journalists. Um, what advice should we conclude from the book? I mean, apart from our responsibility, perhaps, to help, yeah. uh, do the large organizations like the UN, do they come out of it rather poorly? Are you suggesting that they're ineffective or they can be improved? I think they can be improved. I think that they are, they have been ineffective. They have been ineffective in the ways that I describe in my book. Um, but I think that they can be improved. I don't, I don't even think the question is can be improved. I think they have to be improved. And I think that we have to think about our relationship with humanitarian disaster on several levels. We, we need to advocate for big organizations to improve what they do and, and work more efficiently and, and spend more generously and governments to do the same. But we also have to operate on an individual level and do what we can for you know ourselves and as part of a community to get involved and to advocate for people and and when we can to actually try to interact with them and learn from them even you know if you you don't have to go to Greece to do that in in our own country we have so many people who are who are immigrants and finding ways to interact with them is better for all of us and we can learn so much from them there's so much resilience in these people um, we need them. So I think that I think that that's what I would I would urge. That's a, one of the lessons that I learned, and the people, the the volunteers as well. I mean, the people that I've met, uh, they didn't have they, no wasn't something that they considered. They said, "I have to do this. I'm going to do it," and and it also brought dignity to their lives. 
So it's a it's a positive thing. And what about the implications for government? We've done a number of shows on the migration crisis, the refugee crisis on the U.S.'s southern border, mm-hmm. books and conversations with people who traveled over that border. What, what, what is the message of All Else Failed for Joe Biden and the American government when it comes to allowing more people in? Presumably, if more governments let these refugees in from Greece in particular, yeah. then there wouldn't be a crisis on the islands anymore because everyone would leave. Well, I mean, I'm not advocating for open borders. I'm advocating for borders that work and a system that works here in the U S we, we don't have a system that works and people don't have an opportunity uh, or an, an easy enough opportunity to apply for asylum. But I think the most important thing is, is a mindset change to recognize the value that these people can bring to our country. And most of us have, have ancestors who came to this country and, you know, did what they could and probably brought value to this country and made it stronger. And for some reason right now, the idea is this is bad for our country. I would like to say, and I think policymakers should realize that this is something that we need. We need immigration and we need to make it stronger and work better.